The following message is brought to you by Days In. Hey, wake up. Open your eyes to something new every day. Maybe then you'll see that sometimes you have to go far to get a little closer. Seize the days. Hello and welcome to the Cultural Stew Podcast. This is the next episode of Mini Moments of Influence. Today I am excited to welcome my next guest, Dan Lapata. Hi. Dan, tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, um, I would like to qualify myself almost as a musician. Uh, I do play a lot of music live. Um, I met Ron through running. Um, and, uh, as far as music is concerned, I play any style, um, except for, I should stop saying, um, uh, ex- except for pop country for whatever reason, it just doesn't work for me, but I do everything from classical to blues and I make a lot of money doing the blues, um, but have always been into the punk scene since as far back as I can remember. And the punk scene brings us right into what Dan has decided to, to uh, talk with me today about, and that is The Clash's London's Calling album. Uh, a little background on The Clash. They <laughs> formed in uh, 1976. They formed in 76. Uh, they were supposed to be the next big thing, but the record companies didn't really want to take a risk on them. They released their first album. It was uh, in Britain only, and it became a really sought-after import in the U.S. It was a fantastic album. Never really sold much. Um, Then they signed with CBS and released Give Them Enough Rope, which was kind of a flop. Great tunes on that as well. Um, And basically, it was just... uh, Four guys that uh, wanted to make a statement and, you know, following the Sex Pistols and all that, but uh, a a little bit more. So the third album out of the gate was London Calling. And uh, they decided to go basically no holds barred with it and uh, escape all of the punk aesthetic, if you would. Um, at, At that time in 1979, you know, people would sit there and go, you can't play reggae, that's not punk or you can't get into soul and and, and rhythm and blues that's not punk and they said screw it this is what we're going to do and um, they uh, got into a recording studio and really didn't have any material and and started practicing and started playing old tunes and uh, that they all grew up with which uh, were rhythm and blues and reggae and, and whatnot and then started writing and writing and writing and came up with a double album worth of material and decided that they were going to cut a double album, but on their own terms, they were going to sell it for the price of a single album. That's pretty impressive. And before we dig into London's album, um, so it came over into the United States in 1980, a little bit later than because of the UK release. And in 2004, Rolling Stone actually ranked the clash as the number 28 of all time but they ranked this album as eighth out of 500 and the uh song london's calling 15 out of 500 and if you're unfamiliar with the clash almost everybody has probably heard this the song uh 
Will they come? What is it? Rock the Casbah. Rock should the I Casbah, stay or should I should go? Should I stay or should I go? Which has been used in tons of media in the last little while. Um, so their their punk style is very predominant in um, music today. Um, as I went through and listened to this album, uh, I don't know how I've never listened to this album before. Um, but I'm a very I, I love alternative rock. You know, the White Stripes are one of my biggest uh, things, but as I listen to it, I'm like, oh, there's Green Day. Oh, there's White Stripes. Oh, there's a little bit of U2. Oh, there's a little bit of R.E.M. Heck, there's Billy Joel's uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. You know, all these little things that have come from The Clash, you know. But There's Brian Setzer. Uh, there's Brian Setzer. Uh, I was just saying to somebody the other day, one of the songs on there reminded me straight from one of the Drop Dead, Dropkick Murphy songs. I'm yep. like, holy cow, this is just everywhere. I mean, Rockabilly, Scott, the whole movement. I mean, I was a, I was a 90s kid, so I came into the alternative, and I loved Rockabilly. I loved the new swing scene, which all these guys were ska guys that, that yep. got all of that. Yep. Well, you know, they called themselves the only band that mattered. <laughs> Seriously, that was that was what they called themselves, and uh, and you can hear it. You can hear it through um, pretty much everything that came after them. It's funny that you mentioned should I stay or should I go, and and, and that because those that album was the reason why Joe Strummer actually ended up firing Mick Jones um, um, because it became too commercial. So you've got that punk strain, and Joe's going, "This is too much. This is too clean, man. We can't do this anymore." But yeah, you can hear it. You can hear it all over. So digging into London's calling. Um, so you you grew up. When did you first start getting into music? Uh, as young as I can remember, um, I grew up in a household that was more about you know Arlo Guthrie, the nineteen sixties, and, and folk music. And then I was the youngest of four kids, and so. Um, my brothers and sisters were huge Who fans, and then the Who broke up, and my sister was looking for and and I, I can only listen to so much Who without you know reliving my past, so I don't anymore. Um, but then my sister was looking for a new band, and she discovered the Clash, and it caught my ear, and I was like, oh, this is neat, and there and and went from there. But up until that point, I was listening to. Primarily, I want to say progressive rock like Rush and Genesis and and even Kiss. I wasn't so much into punk at that time. And with the introduction of London Calling, which really I don't want to call it a punk album because it, it really escapes the whole one, two chord, three chord punk aesthetic and, and it expands itself. It really caught my ear and, and caught my attention and introduced me to reggae music beyond Eric Clapton's I Shot the Sheriff, which I believe Rolling Stone ranked as one of the worst cover songs of all time. So walk me through London's Calling. You know, you went, you first crossed paths with it, you know, when? Uh, London Calling, uh, I want to say was probably around 84, um, around that time that, that The Clash, you know, Combat Rock came out in 84, so everybody was listening to it then. But it was right before Combat Rock that I started listening to them. And um, 
in London Calling, there were a whole bunch of different songs that had different feels. There's actually only one cover on there, and it's a 1959 tune, and that's Brand New Cadillac. So you had this rhythm and blues thing happening, but it was hard driving. And then you had Rongham Boyo, which was this hard driving ska thing. And it was just like all of these different sounds coming at me and in a horn section. And I was a trombone player at the time. It was like, oh, cool. There's brass happening here and everything else. But the thing that really caught me, because, of course, I was a jaded youth, was there was one line in a song, Death or Glory, that uh, um, explicit warning. The line is, I believe in this, and it's been tested by research, that he who fucks nuns will later join the church. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, they swore. And they don't really swear on any of their tunes. And it, and it seemed like it was such a funny line um, and, and such an edgy line that I, I could grip into it and nobody else my age was into that type of stuff. So, you know, it was a way for me to, you know, be in my own niche in crowd with only a few other people that knew what was going on because that's always been kind of my personality. So, yeah, you know, um, I could walk you through the album, There's, uh, but we don't have that much time. There's just tons of stuff on there. And, and, and what happened was through listening to it, I started digging into the lyrics, and I never listened to lyrics. I am all about tone and harmony and things like that. But this album was different, um, and partly because of that line. And when I started discovering what they were really talking about, the line before that is, in every gimmick, hungry yob, digging gold from rock and roll, grabs the mic to tell us he'll die before he's sold. But I believe in this, and it's been tested by research, that he who fucks nuns will later join the church. And what he's talking about is... There's all these people out there saying, I'm a rock and roll star. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it, and I'm not going to sell out. And then that line about nuns is, yeah, you're playing with the music industry. Eventually, you're going to join. And I was like, wow, revelation. These guys are talking about what it's like to be working in this stuff, what it's like to be in the world. And then all the political upheaval that was happening. You can hear uh, in other tunes references to Ronald Reagan. They never mention him by name. They talk about fascism a lot and about what was happening in the world today and how it was echoing the 30s. Um, Spanish bombs is, is about the Basque bombings that were happening in the 70s, and at the same time it was about the Spanish Revolution that resulted in, in uh, General Franco becoming a dictator. Um, and, and they were talking about all these political and social upheaval issues that were resonating during the time. And I was just becoming aware of them as, as, a, as an adolescent that, you know, there was more to the world than just, you know, me and a cigarette and a, a, a bottle of booze. And, and it really opened my eyes to music what it could do, what it could say, and open my eyes as to what was happening in the world and how it's all happened before, and it keeps cycling around and around and around. And it really shaped a lot of political opinions for me. They are unabashedly socialist. You could call me a socialist. <laughs> Partly because of them. Right. So I don't want to date you with how old you are, but I mean, <laughs> most men don't care about telling their age. So what age were you when you, you hit this? I'm looking at 13, 14 years old. 
Um, I had just basically, uh, I remember seventh grade, I was listening to The Clash. By the time I was in ninth grade, I went to, I went to Spry Junior High in Webster, and we had a ninth grade lounge. Another thing we have in common. Ah, we had a ninth grade lounge where there was foosball tables and pool tables, and we had a stereo, and, and the incoming ninth graders could paint the walls. And I remember that uh, my friend Angie DiMaria, um, she was a huge Lover Boy, Lover Boy fan, which I found hilarious. Um, I didn't get down to paint the walls, but she painted an original Clash logo from their first album on the wall because of me, because she knew I was such a fan. And it was just one of those things where it was like, um, that was that was my thing. I was, I was clearly an adolescent. I was beginning to, you know, dabble in, in chemicals and, and things like that. But I was also trying to find my voice. I was trying to find who I was. And they just resonated with me. And, I, you know, I started walking around with a long trench coat and a uh, uh, bleached up hat and uh, I had a leather jacket underneath and, and I just, you know, started becoming an outsider. I should mention growing up in elementary school, I was bullied quite a bit. And so it was like one of these things where I was starting to stand up and fight back, I think, just with my image. It was like, okay, if you're going to, you know, single me out and make me an outsider, I'm going to embrace this and make myself an outsider. And this is how I'm going to hang on to it by falling into this scene and, and, and dealing and, and listening to this type of music. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the powerful things of music that it doesn't happen in really any other medium is that music can really define who we are on the, on a daily level. Um, Especially through high school. I mean, it, it really, it affected me in the way I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was a big uh, swing kid and ska kid mm-hmm. um, as I got into alternative. So as I started getting into my, my high school year, everybody knew me as the swing kid, you know, and you know, I get, got to perform uh, a swing dance with the high school band um, because that everybody knew me with that. Yeah, we um, got to get you out but, to swing dances. <laughs> I play swing dances. We need to see you, Ron. It's been a while. Um <laughs> But the way that music takes a hold of us and really can define who we are in in that way that, you know, you mentioned you, in the way that you dressed and you started setting yourself apart from other group. Um, I think it has a very defining, almost like an act splitting moment of being able to, are we going to be one of the herd or are we going to be one of those ones that can define and feel our voice going forward? Right. And, and I think with what The Clash put out, and I think... What also they what broke off from them, the bands that came from them, define that style of stop following the norm, do what is uh, what is central to your core and go forward and be true to it. Yeah, yeah. And you could see that a lot in high school. I mean, people would it was music that that people would identify with. You know, we we had the jocks, we had the dopers and we had the art kids and the art kids were into the clash and they were into prog rock. The dopers were into uh, uh, Iron Maiden and, um, and Judas Priest. And, and I dug them as well too. So it was like, I was kind of lost in the mix of all of it, but, but you could see it all and you could see through the style of dress, you could see through what they were listening to. And, and, and that's, you know, and, and that's, I, I agree, you know, music was one of the ways for adolescents to find 
where they fit. And, and I think the clash was really powerful with that. I can move beyond that too, as far as how they influenced me musically too, because especially with this album, you talk about the swing, you talk about the ska, and they did that. Um, another interesting fact that I picked up, the album cover, London Calling, is the same font and the same color scheme as the original Elvis Presley album cover. Is it pink, pink and blue? It's the pink and green. Okay, pink and green with the... And it had Elvis with his guitar up, and with the Clash London Calling, it's... Smashing a guitar. It's Paul Simonon smashing his bass at Hammersmith Palais. And what that was to signify was Elvis was the birth of rock and roll, we're the death of rock and roll. And if you listen to the album and you hear the rock and roll and you hear the ska and you hear the throwbacks, it's the type of thing that that pushes back. And they weren't really trying to denigrate the older music. They were actually celebrating it. So if you listen to something like Jimmy Jazz, it's got this this laid back one, four five jazz feel. If you listen to brand new Cadillac, that's in a 1959 cover tune. And actually I've always wanted to cover the clash and I never have the closest I've come is playing brand new Cadillac, but that's not their tune. You listen to the ska stuff, you listen, you know, they threw back and they were embracing this music, which really, as I go through life, I listen to the music that I started playing and, and primarily, you know, I'm playing 1940s, 1950s music a lot of times with, with bands like the White Hots and, and whatnot. And, and I can relate it to The Clash. These were the things that they were listening to and they were revering it and they were modernizing it and they were bringing it to the modern age. And I hope that I'm kind of doing the same thing. So they've stuck this album particularly has stuck with me you know from from an emotional a political and a musical aspect and it has grown and evolved through time and then my understanding of it has grown or my interpretation of it because i don't know if you ever really understand what was behind what they wanted it's all about how you receive it does that that's make a, sense absolutely that's a good point to remember i mean music is Music is always what you can bring to it. I mean, you can have a, the crappiest song in the world, but if it means something to you personally, then it could be the best song in the world. We call those guilty pleasures. <laughs> I think that I think London's Calling is a good guilty pleasure, though, right. because aside from it having something, it it says something meaningful in when into what they're presenting. You know, they have a lot of um, of those leftist. Um, ideals um and we are living in a very politically charged time right now um yeah if you listen to the album today i mean think about it the album was basically written when when margaret thatcher got into office and reagan was just about to get into office in 1980 and they knew this and they saw this and all of the content it's not explicitly talking about them but it is talking about them and if you listen to that album and you listen to it today and you listen to how they're talking about how corporations are taking over, Clampdown is one of the greatest songs on that album. It talks about, you know, selling your soul to the man. It talks about taking the best of your years of your life and working for some corporation and whatnot that's just going to beat you down. And you're sitting there and you're just trying to make money, trying to make money, trying to make money. And what's it all for? And, and 
it translates to today. It translates to um, what we see in office today, what we see in, in, in society today. And the question is, okay, are you going to go that route or aren't you? And if you're not, what are you going to do? Are you just going to sit and observe or are you going to take action? And that's what the Guns of Brixton is all about, which is, I believe, the only song that the lyrics weren't written by Joe Strummer. They were written by Paul Simonon who's the bass player, and um, he wrote it, and he actually sang that tune. It's the only tune that he sings on the album. And it's all about, you know, fascism. You know, it, it's the whole, they came for this group, and I didn't say anything. And then they came for this group, and I didn't say anything. And then when they came for me, there was nobody to step up. And so the Guns of Brixton is, when they kick at your front door, how are you going to go? Shot down on the pavement or waiting on death row? You know, it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to stand up? Are you going to fall down? Sorry. No. Aside. <laughs> no, it, it, it's exactly what I'm going for here. Um, so I know you'd, you'd recommend the whole album, but if you were to pick out one song for somebody that just walked up to you and said, I need to listen to one song from The Clash today, which one would you pick out? One song from this album or one, one song, song from, from this album? Clash. Okay. Because... Uh, I want people to be able to, I, I, I think the most approachable song that has so many layers to it and is actually a love song that people don't realize is a love song is Lost in a Supermarket. It was written by Joe Strummer and it was sung by Mick. And it's, it's a really nice song and most people know it. It was actually in um, one of those animated movies and Ben Folds covered it. Um, but it's about, it's about Mick's upbringing. He came from a broken family and lived with his uncle and, and uh, you know, um, basically was an abused child and, and didn't know where he was going with his life and, and everything else. And this was Joe's way of saying, dude, I saw what happened with you and I'm empathizing with you and this song is about you and you've made it. And it's a really, really beautiful song, but it also talks about all the despair that was in his upbringing. And whether or not you've had those specific things happen, everybody's got something in them that that has left a mark that hasn't been great. And it um, and and so there's there's that emotional relationship that you can have with that song. To follow up, and I'm going to cheat because there's a second song that follows up that, and that's um, I'm Not Down, which talks about the same stuff, but then it talks about how you break out of it. And, um, and, and, and there's a lot of layers to that song that I relate to as well. That's probably my favorite song on the album, but if I were to recommend one to anybody to get involved in, in the clash in London Calling, it would be Lost in a Supermarket which most people know that tune. Well, Dan, I thank you very much. Um, I thank you for bringing in London's Calling in the Clash and getting me back into listening to uh, some of the music that I just haven't heard before and um, respecting who they are and what they did going forward for all the stuff I listen to currently. Dan, where can we find you on social media <laughs> if you want to be found? <laughs> When you want to be found. Uh, <laughs> Dan Lapata Music on Facebook usually is a good place to find where I'm playing and what groups I'm playing with. 
Um, you can find me playing with the White Hots. Uh, typically, we're once a month at the Little Theater. You can see me play with Genesee Johnny, um, which is a blues act. You can see me play with the Juke Kings, which is another blues act. Um, and Crab Apples, which is a three-piece pop ensemble, and it's all original music, and it sounds a bit like Britpop. So think things like XTC. Um, and they're a really fun band that, you know, we've played twice in two years. <laughs> so if we get out, you got to go see us because you never know if you're ever going to see us again. Uh, before we wrap up, you had mentioned earlier that you were a trombone player, but what is your preferred instrument of choice? Uh, I was a trombone player became a bass trombone major at Ithaca College then dropped out of school and then yada 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 and picked up electric bass and played that for a long time and uh, then got a degree in string bass and string bass is actually my instrument du jour right now um, and I work with it in all the bands that I mentioned except for Crab Apples where I'm playing electric bass um, which is fun but I just can't take it's funny we're talking about punk music and i just can't take playing loud anymore i'm old man <laughs> i'm old and as always you can find me pretty much everywhere as at gf media or gf media ceo you can find us at culturalstew.net or at culturalstew.net on twitter and culturalstew on facebook it's vegan stew it's vegan stew <laughs> thank you dan liked what you've heard, please consider sponsoring us on Patreon. Patreon is a creator support system that allows people to support the things they love and creators to continue doing what they love. Head on over to patreon.com slash gfmedia and choose the Cultural Stew podcast levels to show your support for us. Thank you. Time to get serious about California's failing infrastructure. More than 1,600 bridges are structurally deficient. Proposition 6 will make things even worse. Prop 6 eliminates more than $5 billion annually in dedicated transportation funding. And 6 kills local traffic relief projects already underway. That's why the California Professional Firefighters and California Association of Highway Patrolmen all say no on 6. Paid for by no on Prop 6. Stop the attack on bridge and road safety. Sponsored by business, labor, local governments, and transportation advocates. Committee major funding from California Alliance for Jobs.